At the end of June, Keir Starmer said of Black Lives Matter protesters in an interview, nobody should be saying anything about defunding the police. My support for the police is very, very strong and I wouldn't have any truck with what the organisation is saying about defunding the police or anything else. That's just nonsense. At the same time, the UK government announced four new prisons. Olympic athlete Bianca Williams has said she felt being black is a crime after she was stopped and handcuffed by police while driving in London. I feel like we were targeted because Ricardo was black. Um, and had a nice car. They need to definitely re-evaluate re- the system and because something, something's going wrong. And last week, it emerged that the Met Police carried out 22,000 stop and searches on young black men during lockdown. Every time I get pulled over, I feel angry and I feel scared because these are the people that should be here to protect us. There definitely needs to be an acknowledgement that there is racial discrimination within the criminal justice system. Is it a police force against certain sections of the community and the police service to other sections of the community? Some campaigners, especially in the US, are talking about defunding the police. But what does that actually mean? Should campaigners be calling for it here in the UK? And do police and prisons actually keep us safe? No matter what your problems are, you're simply sent to prison. And we need to be able to think more creatively. It's about moving away from a narrow conception of public safety that relies on policing and punishment and investing in a community's actual safety net. In this episode of the Weekly Economics podcast, we're asking, do we need prisons and the police? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. Okay, so this week I'm delighted to be joined down the line by Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper, Research Associate in Sociology at the University of Greenwich and board member of the Monitoring Group. Hi, Adam. Uh, Hi, thanks so much for having me on today. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so we'll start with the big question. Since the new wave of Black Lives Matter protests erupted, there have been calls to defund the police, both here and the US. It's even come up on this podcast. We had a conversation with Gary Young where he was you know, asking the question about defunding the police coming out as a movement demand and what that meant. So could you tell us, in, in your own words, in your experience, what the demand around defunding the police means? So... The campaign to defund the police is a slogan that comes out of the United States, but I think it has a lot of uh, relevance here in the United Kingdom. So the idea is that over the last 30 years in this country, here in Britain, we've seen the prison population almost double, lots of new prisons being built all the time, as you already mentioned, and lots and lots of more resources being given both to prisons, but also to police officers, whether that be surveillance technologies, new laws, new weapons such as tasers, or powers such as injunctions to prevent people from seeing certain people or accessing particular places or doing certain things. But what it also identifies is the fact that this hasn't coincided with any significant increase or improvement in public safety or reduction in harm. So the things that we're told that police and prisons do fail. What it argues, therefore, is that we can't rely on the police and prison system to solve social problems. They don't make us any safer, they don't reduce harm, and they don't do the things that they're supposed to do. But the other thing about police and prisons is that they actually cause more harm than taking harm away. And this isn't just the terrible cases of George Floyd and others in this country where people are killed or badly hurt by the police. They're also the fact that people who end up being sent to prison are very often people who have already experienced harm. They're more likely to have experienced mental health problems, more likely to have special educational needs, more likely to have experienced homelessness or use drugs problematically, more likely to have experienced domestic abuse or child abuse, all of these types of things. 
And so what defunding the police argues is that rather than trying to simply have the police and prison systems deal with these social problems, we should have social solutions to social problems. And Angela Davis encapsulates it really well. She said that prisons do not disappear social problems. They disappear human beings. Homelessness, unemployment, drug addiction, mental illness and illiteracy are just a few of the problems that disappear from public view when human beings contending with them are relegated to cages, is what Angela Davis says. And this is not a way in which we can solve the social problems which more and more we're relying on the police and prisons to deal with. So you touched upon it a little bit there, this idea that the policing system not only doesn't work, but as you say, actively causes more harm. Is that why people are making calls to defund rather than reform the police? Precisely. So there are two different ways in which we can reform the police. There are reforms which empower the police more, that give the police more legitimacy. And there are ways in which we replace the police and prison system with other kinds of social programmes. And so for a very long time, we've been doing the former. We've been having inquiries, diversity drives, unconscious bias training, police consultancy committees where people from the community can speak to the police every month and tell them what they're not very happy with. More resources for the police, which can help them to become a more legitimate institution. But what we're arguing is for a different type of reform to address social problems. What we're saying is that people should have the economic and social and welfare policies to enable them to not come into contact with the criminal justice system in the first place. So mental health provision, particularly for young people, better council housing and support for people who are struggling with homelessness, uh, healthcare services for people with addiction problems, youth services for our marginalised young people, particularly those who might be at risk of coming into violence or harm, whether it be in the home or on the streets. All of these types of things can help people before they come into contact with the criminal justice system so that it's a social solution to a social problem, not a criminal justice solution. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I'd seen something recently, I think it was a a tweet talking about the fact that Minneapolis City Council have voted to defund the city's police force and that that was a measure that was taken after lots and lots of exactly, as you say, kind of community organising and infrastructure building over years to get to that point. Could you talk a little bit about how that was made possible and the impact it's had? So... Of course, there are some differences in the United States and the United Kingdom. The United States have a very kind of devolved governance system where you have a very specific local budget and it's up to local administrators to decide how that budget is spent. And so a lot of the campaigning is kind of localised or regionalised campaigns to say that we want less of our regional or local budget to go to policing and we want more of it to go to health services, mental health provision, educational supports, for survivors of domestic violence, so on and so forth. And the argument is that putting money in these services will help prevent people from coming into contact with the police. And so there'll be less for reliance on the police and prison system. And they will also reduce the likelihood of people coming into harm's way and therefore reduce the reliance on police and prisons. Things are slightly different here in the United Kingdom, but I think the principle is still the same. And the principle is that we need a social movement which puts pressure on the government and other administrators whether that be mayors of major cities like Manchester or London and other policymakers to say that we need to not only erode the resources and power that the police have, their ability to, as I mentioned, use tasers or surveillance technologies or the use of stop and search in what are called Section 60s, where they can stop and search anyone without needing reasonable suspicion in a given area over a time period. 
And instead, we need to empower and give more resources to our youth and community sector, to our social services, to our healthcare provision, to our educational services. So it's not about necessarily doing the maths in the same way, but it is about which institutions have power and resources and which ones don't. And it's about trying to address the imbalance towards criminal justice that we're currently seeing. Mm, And I wanted to ask, I guess, a question there around framing, because I think, you know, when Gary and I discussed this demand, one of the things that came up was, uh, you know, and it also came up in in what Keir Starmer said, the idea of defunding the police is not equated to the ideas that you just said around redistribution and actually funding other areas, but actually a critique of the police that people aren't comfortable with. Do you think there is a framing issue there? I think there's 100% a framing issue. And I think one of the problems is that many of the uh, institutionalised kind of left spokespeople haven't really got to grips of the problems of policing. And I think this was really evident in the last general election. One of the big issues that many ethnic minority people in the United Kingdom on the left were arguing for was a reform to policing in Britain, an addressing of institutional racism in policing. And unfortunately, even under a very leftist Labour Party campaign, there was very little, if anything, said about addressing police racism. And I think it's taken this social movement just over six months after that general election in which um, Labour was defeated for maybe some people within that camp to realise that this question of policing is absolutely fundamental to any leftist projects. And I think that's become all the more well alluded by the fact that we haven't just seen protests in major multicultural cities over the last six weeks. You've seen them in smaller towns and villages all over England and Wales. And it demonstrates that it's not just black and other minority ethnic people who are concerned about this issue. This is an issue which has gone far beyond that. And it's something which I think the left needs to pay far more attention to. Mm, and it seems like the politicians like Keir Starmer need to kind of play a bit of catch up with actually where the movement is at, as you say. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, where the police came from. I know you've mentioned several times the idea of the kind of colonial history of the UK police force. So it would be great if you could talk a little bit more about that. And then also maybe something specifically around how the police are currently funded, because I know that's a bit of a grey area. I guess when it comes to racism, often in Britain, we have this mythology that racism is this thing that arrives in Britain with the windrush. It comes to Britain in the post-war period. And I think what we have to instead remember is that Britain has been doing racism for a very long time, but it's not necessarily been doing it primarily on the British mainland. It's been doing it in its colonies. It's been doing it in Africa, in Asia, in the Caribbean, in Australia, other parts of the world where it had colonised. And of course, in order to control large colonised populations, in order to use and often exploit their labour, in order to extract resources from these parts of the world, you need to have a very powerful system of governance, a powerful system of control. And this is where racism comes in. And so Britain has been doing this kind of racial governance for many centuries now. And by primarily happening in its colonies with this kind of geographical distance, I guess they've been able to create a conceptual distance and a distance in their minds where they can sing Britannia rule the waves, but still somehow think that racism is this thing that happens in America and, and used to happen in South Africa until relatively recently. So Of course, a fundamental part of that racist governance that enabled Britain to rule so much of the world for so many centuries was policing. 
So if we look at key places like Kenya in the 1950s, Malaya in the 1960s, or Trinidad in the 1930s, we can see how British policing was absolutely fundamental to controlling these populations, particularly as anti-colonial uprisings were emerging in those decades. And so by identifying what the British colonial police called suspect communities, whether they be the Kukuyu in Kenya or the Chinese Malay in Malaysia or trade unionists in Trinidad, that they were able to create these kinds of racialized categories, which used surveillance, used collective punishment, uh, used forms of violence in order to control and coerce them. And so we begin to see this kind of colonial policing migrating to the British mainland as people from Britain's colonies and former colonies migrate to Britain in significant numbers in the post-war period. Probably one of the most salient examples of this in terms of the kind of tactics that we see is through the kind of tactics that were being used in Northern Ireland and Hong Kong. So in the 1980s, during there were uprisings in multicultural urban towns and cities across England. And it was for the first time in these uprisings that the British police used tear gas, brought rubber bullets to the scene of some of these uprisings, although they didn't deploy them, used the tactics of mass arrest and other forms of surveillance to try to repress these rebellions. And so following on from that, we continue to see the kind of racist thinking inform policing in Britain in ways that echo the kinds of colonial policing that Britain had been carrying out for centuries in Africa, in Asia, in the Caribbean, which unfortunately, because it happened quite far away, very little of the British public are very aware of. In terms of the way the British police are funded today, although the British police did endure some cuts during the period of austerity, in comparison with the rest of the kind of comparable areas of public services, those cuts were very, very small. Um, and we've seen a continual increase in their powers. And so if we look kind of more long term over the last 30 or 40 years, there has been almost a completely consistent increase in both police budgeting and the numbers of police on the streets. There are far more police on the streets today than there were 20 or 30 years ago. They have far more power and they have far more resources, such as, as I mentioned, tasers and, of course, the proliferation of armed police. So Britain has the second largest police budget in Europe, second only to Germany, and that has some of the most wide-reaching and intrusive surveillance measures in the world, whether that be the surveillance of our internet usage or our phone usage, or whether it be surveillance technologies in relation to the CCTV cameras and facial recognition technologies that are used on our streets, or the use of DNA and other biometric data that is collected when people are arrested and those types of things. We also see huge amounts of money being put into things like police spying. Although we don't know how much was spent on police spying exactly, we know that the inquiry has cost at least £17 million. And as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, we see four new prisons being built uh, at the moment to incarcerate 10,000 people at the cost of £2.5 billion. So it's a, it's a huge amount of money. Okay, so we've talked about the police for a while. I want to kind of bring us out to the broader context. That's been really useful so far. Thank you. So when we've been having these conversations, the term abolitionism has kind of emerged into the public consciousness to some extent. Obviously, there's been lots of people talking about abolitionism for some time, but I think it's kind of started to proliferate a bit more. So could you explain to us what abolitionism is and its connection to defunding the police? 
So prison abolition or police abolition is an idea which was popularised by Angela Davis in the 1970s. And it's something which I guess is in some ways a revolutionary idea, right? Angela Davis challenged people to envisage a world in which prisons were obsolete, in which prisons were no longer needed or necessary. So what would that world look like? What would you need to do in order to change a society in which prisons and police were no longer needed? So she argued that you'd have to get rid of things like illiteracy and problems with the education system. You'd have to have free education and make it something which is accessible to everyone. You need to treat drug use and drug proliferation not as a criminal justice issue, but as a public health issue. And so you'd need to decriminalise drugs and people who use drugs problematically will be helped with healthcare provision rather than being punished. You would need better mental health support so that the police and prison systems aren't being called to help people who might be having a mental health crisis or any other mental health problems and again treat it as a public health concern. You would have to have better employment conditions so that people are able to access well-paid, well-renumerated employment in good conditions with strong trade unions. You'd need to get rid of homelessness and other forms of destitution and poverty by having a well-funded council housing programme. All of these types of things would be necessary in order to move closer to envisaging a world in which prisons are obsolete. So prison abolition isn't, I think it's important to say, isn't anywhere near the same as slavery abolition, right? When people wanted to abolish slavery a couple of centuries ago, they wanted slavery to end tomorrow. But prison abolition is different to that. It's envisaging a world in which we no longer rely on the police and prison system. right? And effectively, that means that it needs to be a world in which we no longer exploit people in their workplaces or in their homes. It has to be a world in which we no longer have domestic violence or patriarchal violence or child abuse and other forms of gender-based violence. We have to come up with ways in which we help people to unlearn those forms of patriarchal thinking in order to try to prevent that kind of gender-based violence from happening in the first place, rather than attempting to punish people subsequently, which is a completely failed policy. In many ways, it's a revolutionary idea, but it's a revolutionary idea that we can put into practice in our everyday lives and in our everyday policymaking by slowly eroding our reliance on police and prisons in solving social problems and finding ways in which we can prevent those social problems from proliferating or from growing or from forcing people or condemning people to coming into contact with the prison system in the first place. Mm, I mean, yeah, I feel like obviously a lot of what you said really resonated there. And when I read the Our Prisons Obsolete, which I would really recommend to listeners, it's a very short and accessible book that's a kind of really good introduction to a lot of these ideas. I think it was the first time I kind of was confronted with the idea that we need a whole different frame, as you say, to be looking at all of the social problems that we're faced with. And it's about not only constructing that frame in the long term, but then enacting it in our daily practices in policymaking, in activism, in in whatever it is that will actually bring that into being today. One of the things that really enabled me to latch on to the idea of abolitionism in my own work was an activist from the Black Visions Collective. She talked about how if you came home and your house had been ransacked by your cousin who you knew had problematic drug use and other mental health issues, you wouldn't call the police to arrest them. You would try and get hold of them and see what support you could offer, etc. And she kind of said simply, imagine if every criminal was your cousin, you know, kind of thing. And the approach that you would take if it was someone that you cared about. And that for me, just kind of a, a real penny dropped. And I was like, that is a really great way to explain it. 
No, no, totally. I think you're right. And, and I think what it also helps to do is it helps us to break down this idea that good people are the people who are out on the streets and it's the bad people who are locked away in prison, right? And it's quite a powerful propaganda campaign that we're told at a very, very young age that it's bad people who go to prison, right? And I think that if we instead think about the fact that the people who are in prison are more likely to have special educational needs, more likely to have experienced homelessness or mental health problems or addiction problems or have experienced abuse or violence themselves, all of these types of things, what we actually realise is that prison is actually a way of punishing people who have already suffered from the inequalities that pervade our society. They've already been punished by the injustices that pervade our society. And it's about trying to ameliorate those already existing inequalities and injustices that can take us closer to a world in which we no longer rely on prisons and police. Do you think it'd be possible to talk a bit more specifically about some of what it could look like? So in terms of maybe what public services should be relied on instead of policing, if we're talking about things, say, like gender-based violence or decriminalising things like drugs and sex work, has there been thinking around that and other ideas floating around? No, definitely. So in terms of gender-based violence, I guess there are some useful examples in the United States. Um, One of the most important ones, of course, is running programmes, particularly with young boys, to attempt to help them to unlearn the presumptions that that they should have power over women's bodies. This is one of the fundamental patriarchal presumptions that leads to men trying to coerce and control women and their bodies. And so by working with young boys and men from a young age, to help them to unlearn these assumptions and show how these assumptions are actually damaging to both the women they come into contact with, but also themselves, because they're attempting to have some kind of male identity, which is reliant on power and physical coercion. And it's toxic. Yeah, and, it's toxic. yeah, which will only ever be toxic to themselves as well as the people around them. We can help to try to unlearn the types of patriarchal thinking, which leads to this kind of gender-based violence. But that's a very, very difficult one to deal with. But also, there are, of course, more straightforward things around it, right? So it's the idea that we have better investment into refuges for survivors of domestic violence and we therefore we have services that can provide interventions which don't rely on calling the police on perpetrators of domestic violence because often that isn't what the survivor wants and isn't what other people want and it isn't going to actually deal with the problem it's just going to lock it away for a a number of years and then release it that problem back into the world but in fact we need more constructive restorative solutions forms of restorative justice where people learn about the harm that they've caused what effects it's had what effects it's had on themselves as well as the people around them and the people that they're supposed to care about and how they can transform their lives and their relationships and that's the only way in which we're going to deal with that problem rather than trying to lock it up away for a designated period of time. I think the other things which you can do is changing the ways in which we incorporate policing in relationship with young people. So the government at the moment is pushing to have more and more police officers permanently stationed in schools. And this often criminalises young people. Remy Salisbury has just published a paper with this with the Runnymede Trust, which people can check out, which looks at the use of police officers in schools in Manchester. And what you can see within schools where police officers are put in is that you see more and more young people being pumped straight into the criminal justice system. And what schools really need are mental health practitioners. They need youth workers. They need counsellors. They need people who can identify young people who have experienced trauma or harm, whether it be in the home or in the streets, and help them to deal with the violence that they've experienced, help them to deal with those mental health or emotional problems, help them to process that trauma so that they don't end up coming into contact with the police and having them deal with it instead. Because, as I've mentioned, (laughs) um, almost ad nauseum now, 
that doesn't deal with the problem. All it does is lock it away and in fact causes more harm and trauma for the people that have experienced that violence already. It's interesting. I'm sure you have thoughts on this. I know I do. The idea of how we kind of think about criminals and criminality intersects with basically endemic racism. (laughs) Because, you know, a lot of my experience of activism and organizing, my partner also who's a youth worker, I think for me, it just seems clearer every day that what we're willing to kind of see as a human failing that could be our own often is limited based on what we can identify with, right? And you kind of see how in these cases here and in the States and whatever of judges kind of passing really harsh sentences on young kids of colour who are seen as beyond redemption, essentially. There is something really stark about what we're willing to concede might happen to us. And and that kind of brushes up against essentially the idea that the people in power often don't identify with the people that they're punishing. Prisons and police are so powerful because people who are criminalised are seen as less than human, subhuman, or infrahuman, right? And racism is a very powerful way of taking someone who is a human being and turning them into something which is less than human. So if we think about the kinds of what we might call criminal folk devils or the categories of criminal that have elicited the most attention, the most outrage, the most fear over recent decades, we can see they're closely related to race, right? So whether that be the idea of the gang member or the idea around knife crime, clearly linked to black youth, whether it be the idea of terrorism, clearly linked to Muslim communities, or whether it be the idea of we need more detention centres to deal with all of these immigrants, right, which are effectively more prisons, right, and we need more border patrols who are effectively forms of police officers. Again, it's the immigrants, right, so it's the immigrants, the gangster, the terrorist. These racialized criminals are used as the justification for the expansion of our police and prison system. And so we should be unsurprised, therefore, that almost a quarter of our prison system is made up of black and Asian and minority ethnic people. But I think what's important here is that while racism is used as the justification for expanding our prison and police system, and of course, therefore, black and Asian people are wholly overrepresented in that prison and police system. Once that system is in place, it affects all working class communities, all lower income communities, right? So 75% of the people in prison, the overwhelming majority of people are white people from lower income communities. And so while it's racism that has been the justification for expanding these prison and police powers, it's not been the people on the receiving end of racism who have only been affected. It's affected all lower income people. It's this combination of race and class that I think is fundamental to us understanding why it is that ideas around prison abolition are so powerful in cutting through the multiple problems and injustices that exist within our society. Hmm. So often people say that defunding the police will free up money for things like mental health services, etc. And we've talked within that frame a little bit in this conversation, right? It's not necessarily just about defunding the police. It's also about reinvesting and redistributing into other public services. But obviously under austerity, both the police budget, although much less so as you've articulated, and the mental health budget and the social housing budget and the education budget have all been slashed. So would you say that the argument for defunding the police kind of inadvertently reinforces that austerity mindset, the idea that there isn't enough public money to go around, so we've got to take it from somewhere and put it elsewhere? I think it's really important that you've raised that because we can easily slip into this idea that there is um, a limited budget, you know, that the idea that the national economy is the same as a household budget and we need to move things around. And I think this is one of the problems that arises when we might take really powerful slogans that are maybe 
been effective in some contexts and use them elsewhere. So when we talk about defunding the police, I think it's important that what we mean is that we need to have the resources and power that the continued investment in the police has led to and take those resources, take that power and put it into social solutions, into community solutions to the social problems that arise within our society. And so I agree with you that it's really important that we don't create the impression that austerity is a natural thing, right? Austerity was a political choice. I think what we need to do is we need to reduce the power and resources of an institution which is not only failing to do what it says that it does, but critically brings more harm to the most vulnerable people within our society. And I think if taking resources in a very uh, financial way is one way of doing that, I think that's important. But it also needs to be more than simply taking money away from the police. It needs to be about their power, their power to impose injunctions, their power to use tasers, their power to stop and search, their power to arrest. All of these powers need to be eroded as well. They need to be scrutinised in a way that demonstrates how ineffective they've been at improving public safety and how much harm they've caused to the communities who need protection from harm the most. Mm, I mean, it's just such a tricky framing issue, isn't it? Because I think one of the things I do in my work at Neon is working with groups to advise them essentially on framing demands and, you know, political strategy and things like that. And what we would say is you want to have a demand that the best ones are ones that are kind of, they have a symbolic element. They also have an instrumental element and they also have at least the potential to become what we'd call kind of a popularized demand or something that people can hear and get on board with. And I would say that defund the police is such a difficult one because I think it's, it is symbolic. It is instrumental. It is currently, I would say, not popular because of a lot of the things that we've discussed on this call, but it feels like to kind of simplify it or to reshift the focus onto funding other areas or whatever, it would kind of be doing an injustice to what it is the movement is asking for and we're asking for, which is not just reallocate the money. It's also change essentially entirely how we think about police. And as you said, crucially, what power they have and don't have. So how you sum that up in three words, I have no idea. Don't ask an academic to sum anything up in three words. <laughs> yeah, wrong wrong person. Okay, so we're going to wrap up. But I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of shine a bit of a light on what has been going on historically in this area in the UK, because obviously it seems like the moment has bubbled up right now. But as we know, these things don't come from nowhere. So could you talk a little bit about the yeah historical campaigns, abolitionist campaigns that have existed in the UK and, and where they're at? So I won't go into a huge amount of history. I mean, I think you go back to the 1960s and 70s, but groups that are around today that have been doing this work for a significant amount of time, I think are really important to remember. One of them is the United Family and Friends Campaign, which is a coalition of families whose family members or friends have been uh, killed or have died at the hands of both the police or prison system or some of them in mental health institutions. So that's a really important campaign, which uh, has a march every October and does a lot of campaign work on all over the country. There's another group as well called Communities Against Prison Expansion, CAPE, which has been doing important work in relation to running education and other projects and campaigning against new prisons being built. There's, of course, lots of campaigns which aren't thought of as against police and prisons, but are, which are in solidarity with undocumented people and um, other migrants. So campaign like Movement for Justice and those which are campaigning against specific detention centres, which are effectively prisons like Yarlswood, are also really important for us to include in this struggle against police and prisons. And so while there have been these kind of 
seemingly disparate campaigns for specific people who have experienced police brutality or against specific prisons or against seemingly specific issues. What's vitally important is that we connect them up. One more that I forgot to mention was Jengba, which is a joint enterprise not guilty by association, where lots of family members who have children incarcerated for 10 or 15 years because of a doctrine called joint enterprise where you can be convicted for a a crime even if you weren't present during that crime being committed because the police have told you that you're an associate of the person who was supposed to have committed the offence often through the idea of them being in the same quote-unquote gang. So there are lots of these different groups which have been chipping away different parts of the criminal justice system, chipping away different ways in which we've been punishing some of the most vulnerable sections of our society and not dealing with the social problems through non-punitive measures which don't rely on punishment. So it's about drawing the dots between these different campaign groups and recognising that collectively they've been chipping away and eroding our reliance on police and prisons and arguing for just solutions, arguing against the criminalisation of migration, for better youth services and mental health provision, for better uh, resources for survivors of domestic violence. All of these types of things that are needed in order to live in a world in which we don't continually see our prison population increase year on year on year and the numbers of police and the power and the weapons that the police have increase and bloat year on year on year and the amount of money of course right that we spend on this uh, criminal justice system continually expand to Mm. I uh, also wanted to shout out one more, which is uh, Cradle Community have just launched a zine called How to Be an Abolitionist Today, which seems very timely. And you listeners can head over to their website, Cradle Community, and order that if they want to hear more about how to become an abolitionist. I just wanted to ask one more question, Adam, just before we wrapped up. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention COVID-19 because it's 2020. And I know your colleague, Derricka Pannell, has written about how the COVID-19 pandemic led to some prisoners in the US being freed, but also empowered police. So I just wanted to kind of wrap up by asking how you think the current moment has impacted abolitionism and everything we've been discussing. The corona lockdown has been a very difficult one because on the one hand in the US, there's been big campaigns to have people who are incarcerated released, but simply having them released from prison doesn't mean that they have the social provisions necessary to live outside of prison. It's very difficult to come out of prison if you don't have access to a job or a house or healthcare, or if you had addiction problems, some kind of services to help you, or if you have any healthcare problems, free healthcare, all of these types of things, right? But these are, of course, precisely the kinds of abolitionist reforms that these campaigners have been asking for. They haven't just asked for the end of prisons, right? They've asked for the end of prisons and for these to be replaced by the healthcare, the jobs, the housing, the addiction services, all of these types of things as well. You can't have one without the other, right? We can't close every prison tomorrow. We can't get rid of every police officer tomorrow because we don't have the social infrastructure in place to replace all of that criminal justice infrastructure which we've come to rely on over many, many years. So it's been a very, very difficult process. Here in the UK, there haven't been as strong demands for incarcerated people to be released, but I know a lot of people have been released due to COVID-19. But of course, again, the big question is, what will they get when they are released? Will they get the housing and the health care, the mental health care, the employment, all of the other things they need to live a dignified and safe and harm-free existence when they've been released from prison? 
What we have seen, of course, is a massive increase in police powers. Right? So we've seen a big increase in police powers during the lockdown, and that's been really worrying. We've seen a huge increase in stop and searches, including for drugs. So if I remember correctly, we've seen stop and search for drugs at a nine-year high in spring of this year. So the police are using the opportunity that's been afforded to them with the new powers they've been given during the lockdown to do what they usually do, to stop people on suspicion of carrying drugs, generally small amounts of cannabis. And of course, we know disproportionately this is targeting black people. In many ways, the lockdown has seen the same but worse from the police. Right? And we've also seen the use of Section 60s, which they put on a specific place or area over a specific period of time, which enabled the police to stop and search people without requiring the paperwork of reasonable suspicion. And so there's been a real problem with both the expansion of police powers, but also the problem of police accountability. Right? There are less people on the streets during lockdown to be witnesses to what's taking place. And because the lockdown rules have been quite uh, ambiguous, to put it lightly, it's been very easy for the police to interpret their new powers in ways which are far more difficult to challenge from members of the public. But what I will say is, and this is something that we've noticed from working at the monitoring group, since the protests began about six weeks ago, the Black Lives Matter protests, there's been a massive increase in people recording their interactions with the police. There's been a massive increase in people recording, being stopped, being searched, being assaulted, being pulled over by the police, being arrested, being harassed, a huge proliferation of them not just going around social media, but being referred to organisations like Stopwatch, like the Monitoring Group, like Network for Police Monitoring, like London Campaign Against Police and State Violence. Right? And it's those referrals that mean that campaigns can begin, that pressure can be put onto the police, that they can really have their legitimacy eroded and their confidence in exploiting their power in the ways that they have been in the manners that we've seen over the period of lockdown. And so there has been, I think, a change of scene during this lockdown period, which has coincided with these protests that have led to people not just taking to the streets and go to a protest on one day and then go home, but in their everyday lives, resisting policing and the harassment that comes with it in ways that I think are truly transformative. And I think it's difficult not to to be inspired by. Well, I mean, Adam, I could obviously stay and talk to you about this all evening. There's so many more questions I want to ask. Hopefully we can have you back in the near future, but that is all we've got time for. Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work and hear more from you, which I'm sure they do, where can they go and what should they read? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AdamEC87. And most of the things that I write are on my page on the Greenwich University website. So if you look up my name and then Greenwich University, that should pop up and then you can read what I've written there fantastic so lovely listener that's it for today's weekly economics podcast if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it and as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at neff on twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe